From PQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. Hello, my name is Yun Li, and I'm the author of A Thousand Years of Good Prayers and the Vagrants. And I'm reading today the title story from my new collection, Gold Boy, Emerald Girl. Gold Boy, Emerald Girl. He was raised by his mother alone, as she was by her father. She wondered if his mother, who had set up their date, had told him about that. Si Yu was thirty-eight, and the man Han Feng was forty-four. Si Yu's father, after supporting her through college, had remarried, choosing a woman thirty years his junior. The woman had a young son from her previous marriage, whom Si Yu's father had taken on as his responsibility. The boy was now in his last year of high school, and Si Yu, having told her father many times that he deserved peace and simplicity, maintained a respectful distance from his new family. Each year, she spent New Year's Eve and sometimes other holidays with Han Feng's mother, who had been her zoology professor in college. There was no way to predict when the older woman would be in the mood to invite Si Yu. So she tried to keep herself uncommitted, which meant that most of the holidays she spent alone. Professor Dime must miss her students these days, Siu said after she and Han Feng had exchanged greetings. Although she knew it was now the students that his mother missed, but the wide skulls of mammals and birds on her office shelves, the drawers filled with scalpels and clams and tweezers that she had cleaned and maintained with care. And the fact that she could mask her indifference to the human species with her devotion to animals—the first time Si Yu had seen Professor Dai on a campus tour during the opening week of college, the older woman had been following a strutting owl down a dimly lit hallway. She paid little attention to the group of new students, and stooped slightly the whole time, as if she were the mother of a toddler and had to watch out for minor accidents. When a boy stepped over to take a closer look at the owl, she scooped up the bird and glared at him before striding away. Retirement is a strange thing for her, Han Feng said. His mother had always despised women who grabbed every opportunity to matchmake, but within days of his return to China, she had mentioned a former student she thought he should meet. His mother did not say much else. But he could sense that it was marriage she was thinking about. Twenty years of living away from her had not changed that in him. He always knew what was on her mind before she said it, and he wondered if she was ever aware of that. The tea house where Han Feng and Si Yu were meeting at a hillside pavilion in the Summer Palace had been chosen by his mother, and she had suggested that they also take a long stroll along the lakefront. It was early March. The day turned out overcast and windy, and secretly Han Feng hoped that the wind would not die down, so they could forego the romantic walk. He wondered if Si Yu was wishing for a different scenario. He could not yet read much from her face. She smiled courteously as she gave him a few facts about white peony, the tea she had ordered for them both. But the smile and the words seemed to come with effort, as if her interest in interacting with him could easily fade. Her body was slender, 
and her hair, black with noticeable strands of gray, was kept straight and at shoulder length. He wondered why the woman, who was beautiful in an unassuming way, had never married. Do you find Beijing a different city now? Si Yu said. It must be a question that he was asked all the time, but it would not do anyone any harm. She thought. It was not the first time that Si Yu had been set up with a stranger. Since she had turned twenty, neighbors and acquaintances, pitying her for not having a mother to fuss over her future, had taken it as their responsibility to find a husband for her. But with those men, she had known from the beginning that she would not bother trying to impress them. Over the years, she had developed a reputation as unmatchable, and nowadays, only the most persistent of the matchmakers would mention a widower or a divorcee in his fifties or sometimes sixties as a possible solution. The first time such a prospect was presented in an enthusiastic speech, Sui had odd feeling that she was now expected to marry her father. Only later did she realize that she was no longer a young woman. Siyu worked as a librarian in the zoology institute, and her life had not changed much from that of a college student. In her mind, she might still be the eighteen-year-old who had set up her alarm clock early, so that by six o'clock she would be sitting on a bench under the ancient ginkgo tree in front of the biology building. At half past six, Professor Dai would arrive on her bicycle, a tall, rusty, heavy-built one that would have better suited a peasant or a street peddler. And she would nod at Siyu almost imperceptibly as she locked it up. It had taken two years for Professor Dai to cross the courtyard and ask Siyu about the thick volume she had been reading every day. Charles Dickens, Siyu replied. And then added that she was trying to memorize great expectations. Professor Dow nodded, expressing neither surprise nor curiosity at the task that had already made Siyu an eccentric in the eyes of her classmates. Siyu did not explain to them that her grandfather, her mother's father, whom she had never met, had once memorized volumes of Dickens on the small balcony of a Shanghai flat. A feat that had eventually led him, before the liberation, to a high position in a bank run by Englishmen. It was Dickens who had, in the end, killed Sue's mother. As a daughter of a British capitalist loyal lapdog, she had hanged herself when her own daughter was four months old, barely old enough to be weaned. Hamphone looked at Sue's face, detecting a familiar absent-mindedness. His mother too asked him questions to which she seemed scarcely interested in knowing the answers. He wondered if this happened to women who lived by themselves. Too many cars, he replied. The standard response he gave when asked about his impression of Beijing these days: "I miss the bicycles." Hanson had returned from the states a month earlier. He had told his former colleagues in San Francisco about his intention to settle down in China. And they had joked about moving with him and becoming the Forty Niners of the new gold rush. He went along with the joke, making up ambitious business plans that he knew he would never carry out. His mother was getting old, he explained to his friends.
The thought that he too was no longer a young man in need of adventures, he kept to himself. Simon retired was how he liked to think of his situation. But within days of returning to Beijing, he had realized that what he had made in the States at the tail end of the dot-com bubble would not be sufficient to support a life of idleness as he had hoped. Still, he was not eager to go out and seek employment. He deposited half of his money into his mother's account and told her that he would take a break. She did not ask about his plans in the same way that she had not questioned his decision to leave or to come home. At 71, his mother was as independent as ever, and she loathed most activities that a woman her age enjoyed, taking morning walks with a companion, gossiping and bargaining at the marketplace, watching soap operas in the afternoon. Hanson had never wondered how his mother spent her days in retirement until his return, when, all of a sudden, the three-bedroom flat that must have seemed empty to her became crowded. He had been the one to cook for the two of them when he was a boy, dividing the meals in half and eating his portion alone. His mother, her preoccupation with her research a ready excuse, had eaten at odd hours then. Since his return, he had taken over the cooking again, and now that neither of them was eager to go out into the world to fulfill any duty, they ate together. The idea of renting a flat had occurred to Han Fong, but as soon as the thought formed, he dismissed it as a waste. He had left for America right after college, a move intended to claim a place for himself, a whole continent in the end. As in 20 years, he had drifted from New York to Montreal, then Vancouver, and later San Francisco, in a life that had to be lived away from a mother. But with the return to China, he no longer felt the urgency to have his own place. Freedom is like restaurant food, he once told an old friend in the States, and one can lose one's appetite for even the best restaurants. Pure nonsense, replied his friend, who, unlike Han Fun, had long ago settled down with a partner, a house, and two dogs, and talked of adopting a baby. Take a break, he said, urging Han Fun to return to California after he refreshed himself with his homemade dumplings and noodles. Han Fun, however, could envision himself living a bachelor's life in his mother's flat, reading the same newspapers and comparing notes on the stories that interest them both, wandering freely through the flat when she went out for her piano lessons twice a week. The piano was the only thing that kept his mother actively engaged with the world. Soon after Han Feng's return, she had asked him to go to a recital she was playing in at a local music school. It was attended by men and women Han Feng's age, who seemed nervous when their well-trained and nicely dressed children took the stage. She gazed at the sheets of music for a long moment, then started to pound on the keys with a seriousness that took Han Feng by surprise. He had thought that piano was merely a retirement pastime for his mother, and had protested mildly when she mentioned that her goal was to be good enough one day to play forehand with him. Han Fun had not told her that he was no longer playing, even though a rented piano had always been the first piece of furniture to fill an empty flat in each city he moved to. 
Small children giggled in the audience, and a few older ones smirked, pitying the old woman for her stiff arthritic fingers, which would never again be as good and agile as theirs. Some parents shook their heads at their children disapprovingly, and it occurred to Han Feng that he was becoming a parent for his mother, that he would be the one to protect her from the hostility of the world. The thought baffled him. His mother had always been a headstrong woman, and with her grayish white mane and unsmiling face, she appeared as regal and intimidating as she had always been. Still, seeing her through other people's eyes, Han Feng realized that all that made her who she was, the decades of solitude in her widowhood, her coldness to the prying eyes of people who tried to mask their nosiness with friendliness. And her faith in the notion of living one's own life without having to go out of one's way for other people—all these could be deemed pointless and laughable. Perhaps the same could be said of any living creature—a caterpillar chewing on a leaf, unaware of the beak of an approaching bird, an agate mesmerized by its reflection in a pond, as if it were the master of the universe. Or Han Feng's own folly of repeating the same pattern of hope and heartbreak, hoping despite heartbreak. Si Yu asked a few more questions, and Han Feng replied. When there was nothing much left to say, he curled his fingers around the teacup and studied its shape. And Si Yu pictured him as a young boy, spreading his slender fingers on the cold keys of a piano. His mother must have told him when he complained about the open window in the winter, that playing would keep the blood circulating in his hands. Si Yu did not know why she imagined that; it was as unfounded as all the other things she had made up about him. In Professor Dai's flat, there were framed snapshots of Han Feng playing in piano contests at five, eight, ten, fifteen. There were snapshots of him when he had first arrived in America, with his bright-colored T-shirt, long and flying hair, and broad smile, as picturesque and unreal as the Statue of Liberty in the background. Si Yu had been eighteen when she first saw those photographs, when she was sent as a representative from her class to deliver a New Year's present to Professor Dai. No one had wanted that job. Professor Dai's coldness was known to be hurtful, and it made sense that Si Yu, with her mild eccentricity, would be the one chosen. But that day, to Si Yu's surprise, Professor Dai did not simply dismiss her from the doorway. Even though she immediately placed a present, a framed painting of a golden carp, next to the wastebasket, instead, Professor Dai invited Si Yu into the flat. Moved the papers that covered the dining table onto the piano bench and let Siyu sit while she went to the kitchen to make tea. Her son was the one who played the piano. Professor Dai answered when Siyu asked, and pointed out the pictures of Han Feng. Very vaguely, Siyu had thought that he was the kind of boy she would like to have as a boyfriend, a press badge that she could wear to make other girls jealous. Years later, she knew it was not the thought of the boy that had made her wait on the bench outside the biology building in the mornings during college, nor was he the reason she continued to befriend Professor Dai in a manner allowed by the older woman. 
Occasionally, Zi would carefully study the pictures of Han Feng in Professor Dai's flat. And when they ran out of things to say about animals, she would ask about his life in America. When Professor Dai called and asked her to meet Han Feng, Zi wondered if the matchmaking had come as a result of a beguiling impression she had left of her interest in a good-looking bachelor. The waitress came to offer a fresh pot of tea. Han Feng turned to Zi and asked her if she was ready to leave. They had spent almost an hour talking, and he had fulfilled his mother's wish without humiliating the woman with his lack of interest. Zi so looked out the window at the willow trees, their branches waving like unruly hair in the wind. Not a great day for a walk, Han Feng said. Zi so agreed and then asked him if he needed a ride. I'll take a cab home, he said. I'm driving past your mother's place in any case, Zi so said. Her own flat, a small studio that she rented from a retired couple, was only minutes from Professor Dai's flat, but Si Yu thought she would appear too eager if she mentioned that. Han Feng wished that he had made up an excuse, a lunch with a friend in another district, an exhibition or a film to see, but it was too late to correct himself now. A week later, Han Feng's mother asked him if he planned to see Su Yu again. They had finished their breakfast and were reading that morning's newspapers, plates and bowls scattered on the table between them. Han Feng's mother did not raise her eyes from the page as she asked, but he knew the question was not as haphazard as it seemed. Should he? he replied. Do you dislike her? It took more than an hour of tea for him to say that he disliked the woman, Hanthon thought. But he just shook his head slightly. He was not surprised by his mother's question. Do you dislike piano? She had asked when he wanted to give up the instrument at twelve for games that he could play with boys his age. Do you dislike engineering? when he thought of pursuing a literature degree in college rather than the one she had chosen for him. Before he left China, she told him that she might not have been a good mother in the worldly sense, but she considered herself successful in having given him two things, practical skills with which to earn a living, and the music as the only trustworthy companion and consolation for his soul. Twenty-three and in love with a childhood friend who was dating a chirpy girl, Han Feng did not believe that either of his mother's gifts would in any way contribute to his happiness. America, at first glance, seemed a happy enough place, and when his friend caught with the news of his engagement, Han Feng thought out companions. All he wanted was to have some fun, he replied when more was asked of him. Have fun, wasn't that a phrase that replaced words of farewell in many Americans' lexicon? But eventually the reply came back to taunt him. I thought we would have some fun and that's all, his last lover had said, a Chinese boy, a new immigrant, as Han Feng himself had once been, whom Han Feng had helped support through college. He should ask Si Yu out for a movie, his mother suggested, or a concert. When he showed the lukewarm reaction, she said, or asked her to have dinner with us here. Wouldn't that be too quick, Hanfeng said. Even though Si Yu had been introduced to him by his mother, 
A dinner invitation after meeting only once seemed to imply an approval of sorts from both him and his mother. She's not a stranger, his mother replied, and proceeded to check the calendar on the kitchen wall. Saturday was a good day, she said, and one handful questioned Su's availability at such short notice. His concerns were dismissed. She'll rearrange her schedule if she has to, his mother said, and wrote down the date and Su's number on a piece of scrap paper. Hanfeng wondered if Su Yu had felt similar pressure from his mother. What would she have said to Su Yu? I would like you to date my son. Knowing his mother, he wondered if she had simply mentioned that her son needed a wife, and that she thought Su Yu would be the right person for the role. Why has she never married? he asked. I imagine for the obvious reason of not having felt the need to get married. Does she want to get married now? Hanfeng said. He had expected his mother to reply that Su Yu had not met the right person, and then he could have questioned why his mother thought him a good choice for her. She didn't say no to the date last time, no? When Hanfeng caught Su Yu to invite her to dinner, the line was quiet for a moment. He waited for her to find an excuse to turn down the invitation, or better still, to tell him that she had obliged his mother with their last meeting, and the sensible thing to do now was to make their mutual disinterest known to his mother. Instead, Su Yu asked him if they could possibly meet once more before the dinner. Any time after she got off from work would do, she said. He wondered why she needed to see him when all could be settled on the phone, but he agreed the late afternoon meeting that day. There was a power outage at the coffee shop where Su Yu had suggested they meet. Apart from the light of a few candles on the counter, the inside of the shop, a long, narrow rectangle, was almost pitch dark. Su Yu, who had arrived a few minutes earlier and taken a seat by the only window, explained to Han Feng that the place was always quiet, and more so today. A sulky young girl placed a pot of tea and two cups heavily on the table. Su Yu apologized for the shop's unfriendliness after the girl returned to the counter. I'm about their only regular customer, but for three years no one has acknowledged me, she said. Why do you still come here? It's quiet. I can assure you it's not easy to find a quiet place like this in Beijing, Su Yu said. My theory is that the proprietress is a rich man's mistress. She does not want the shop to make money for him, but he cannot close it because it was his present to her. They seem to hire unhappy people here, he said. The proprietress is a beautiful woman, Su Yu said. Hanfeng nodded. He had no further questions, and she could see that he was one of those people who would not return to the place. She wished she could tell him that apart from the beauty of the woman who once in a while showed up at the coffee shop with an air of authority, there was little evidence to support her guess. Yet there had to be an explanation for the sad, lifeless appearance of the shop. She thought of telling him this, but he was part of the world that did not seek her explanations. The world had made up its mind about her oddity in her spinsterhood. They sat in silence for a moment. In another place, a more romantic setting, lovers' murmurs would have been well masked by the soft jazz coming from hidden speakers, 
their faces illuminated by candlelight. But here there was no music, and the candles were lit out of necessity. The idea of getting to know Han Feng better before having dinner with him and his mother seemed, like all the other ideas that had occurred to Si Yu, a regrettable mistake. When he did not help find a harmless topic of discussion, she asked him if he was aware of his mother's wish to see him get married. I suppose all mothers worry about their children's marriage status, Han Feng said vaguely. He had thought that his mother had long ago accepted who he was. When he had visited in the past, she had never pressed for any details of his American life, sparing him the pain of explaining himself. Doesn't your mother? She had no right to feel let down, Si Yu thought. Still, it disappointed her that Professor Dai had not told him much about her. That she had been raised by her father was, from a young age, the first thing people said of her. I never met my mother, she said. My father brought me up all by himself. Hanfeng looked up at her. Before he could form an apology, she said there was no need for one. She had grown up not knowing her loss, so there had not been any real loss. She wondered if that was how Hanfeng thought of his father. Professor Dai had never mentioned her late husband, but Si Yu had once had a summer job in the department office and had heard other professors and the secretaries talk about how he had died in a snowstorm when his bicycle skidded in front of a bus. An accident that no one could be blamed for, but Si Yu had sensed the other's disapproval of Professor Dai as if she were partially responsible for the unfair fate that befell the man. The dead husband, by contrast, was always praised as the gentlest person. What was it like to grow up with only a father? Hanfeng asked. He had little recollection of his father, but there were photographs taken when Hanfeng had turned a hundred days, six months, one year, and then two years old. In all four pictures, he was flanked by his parents, who looked serious and attentive. They would have been called gold boy and emerald girl at their wedding, enviable for their matching good looks. It must have been his father's idea to have a family picture taken at every milestone of his life, since after his father's death, Hanfeng had never been the same photograph as his mother. Si Yu replied that she imagined it was not very different from growing up with only a mother. There was no other parent to whom they could compare the one they had, and love did not have to be balanced and divided between the two people. The claiming of loyalty was unnecessary. Si Yu did not say these things, but there was a gentleness in Han Feng's eyes where before there had been only aloofness, and she knew that he understood. Han Feng turned away from Si Yu's gaze and looked out the window. A woman in a heavy mud-colored coat was riding a bicycle and threading through the long line of cars in the street. A young child bundled up in a gray shore so that its gender could not be determined sat on a bamboo chair affixed to the back rack of the bicycle, as unfazed as the mother was by the impatient honking of drivers around them. Hanfeng pointed out the child to Si Yu. Knowing that both of them had traveled the streets of Beijing in that way, he behind his mother, she her father, 
after the woman and her child had disappeared from sight. Si Yu said that when she started to ride her bicycle to school at twelve, her father would get up every morning and run after her until she reached the school gate. She used to be ashamed of being the only one escorted to school by a running father, but she could never say no to him. He must be the most loving father in the world, Han Feng said. Si Yu nodded. A door behind the counter opened and then closed. And for a moment, it seemed that the flickering candles would be extinguished. She had had to squeeze the handbrake often on the downhill ride to the school, so that her father's panting would not be so loud that other people took notice. And only when she was much older did she realize that her father had insisted on running beside her, so that she would not become one of the wild youngsters who sped and broke an arm or a skull in an accident. She had always been aware of his love for her and for her mother, even though he had not said much. But in the end, she had been the one to make up grand excuse for her absence. "You're still my only daughter," he said to her when she decided not to attend his wedding. "You're part of family," he said when she told him that she would not be coming home for the Lunar New Year. He did not need her to complicate his life," she replied. Knowing that he would stoically accept her proposal of a monthly lunch as their only way of remaining father and daughter, ungrateful and cold-hearted she must seem in the eyes of old neighbors and family friends, but how could she stay in his sight when she was going through her life with a reckless speed known only to herself, all because of a love she could not explain and did not have the right to claim in the first place? I wonder if I made a mistake by bringing you up alone," her father had said to her at their most recent lunch, taking it as his failure that she had not founded a husband. I was afraid of what a stepmother would do to a girl, but perhaps a woman would have made a difference," he said, less guarded and more talkative now in his old age. Si Yu shook her head and denied that he had anything to regret. That she had grown up without a mother could be a ready explanation for anything: her oddness in her teenage years, her choice of an unremarkable job, despite her excellence in schoolwork, her singleness. Were people to know her secret, they might easily conclude that she had spent her life looking for a mother in her love of an older woman. But Si Yu did not believe that things would have turned out any differently had she had a mother. A beautiful and sad woman, Han Feng thought, as he looked at Si Yu's face. As beautiful and sad a woman, perhaps, as his mother had once been. Could this account for his mother's wish for a marriage between Si Yu and himself? Han Feng had been surprised at first that a formal student would remain close to his mother. She had not been the kind to pick favorite among her students. Si Yu seemed to know his mother only in a peripheral way, as a pupil, and Han Feng wondered if this was why his mother had allowed the younger woman to remain a friend. When Han Feng was ten, a woman had come from a southern province to see his mother. Unannounced visit, he could tell when his mother had returned home in the evening, and found him shouting peace alongside the guest, their knees almost touching on two low stools. 
The woman who had told Han Feng that she was a very old friend of his mother's and was planning to stay with them for a week left the next morning before he awoke. He was puzzled but intuitively knew not to ask his mother about it. Still, the image of the woman's face, pale at the first sight of his mother, and her hands which let the peas fall into a pile of shelves, stayed with Han Feng. He could not pinpoint when he understood that there had been betrayals between the two friends, but by the time he left home for college, he knew that he would never learn the true story, his mother having long ago decided to live alone with the secret until her death. At the dinner, both Su Yu and Han Feng felt the shyness around each other, but Professor Dai did not let awkwardness deter her. When you are young, you marry for passion, she said, looking first at her son and then at her future daughter-in-law. When you are old, you marry for companionship. Hanson glanced at his plate. One day she would die, his mother had said to him the night before. There was nothing to grieve about in her death, but she would like to see that he did not repeat her fate. Repeat? Hanson asked pretending that he did not understand and knowing that she could see through him. She would like him to marry Su Yu, his mother had said. There were many ways to maintain a marriage, and she expected theirs to be far from the worst. The same message had been conveyed to Su Yu when Han Feng was sent to buy a bottle of wine for dinner. She was helping Professor Dai lay the table, and when she looked over, the older woman paired the chopsticks without meeting her eyes. Suyu had never mentioned the strangers she had been matched up with over the years, but one New Year's Eve, Professor Dai had told Suyu that she shouldn't get married if it was not what she wanted. They had just finished dinner, and sitting across the table from Professor Dai, Suyu could see the print of bamboo leaves on the curtain lit up by the fireworks outside. Professor Dai had opened a bottle of wine that year, an unusual addition to the holiday meal, as neither of them was a type to celebrate. You could feel trapped by the wrong man, Professor Dai said. Her voice, softened by the wine, was less steely and almost inaudible beneath the booming of the fireworks. You would have to wish for his death every day of your marriage, she said. But once the wish was granted by a miracle, you would never be free of your own cruelty. Si Yu listened, knowing that the older woman was talking about herself, knowing also that both of them would pretend to have forgotten the conversation after that night. Other conversations on other New Year's Eves would never mention again. One year, Si Yu told Professor Dai about her mother's suicide. Another year, Professor Dai mentioned that her son had no interest in marriage. Professor Dai's acknowledgement of Si Yu's decision to purchase a second-hand car so that the older woman would avoid taking a quiet bus or enduring a chatty cab driver was hinted, but not directly stated. And so was her gratitude for Si Yu's alertness when she failed to answer Sui's weekly phone call, and later Sui discovered the old woman on the floor by the piano, having suffered a stroke. She had remained unmarried for Professor Dai, Sui thought now, and she would, with her blessing, 
become a married woman. She would not wish for her husband's death as his mother had, because the marriage, arranged as it was, would still be a love marriage. Si Yu had wished to be a companion for Professor Dai in her old age, and her wish would now be granted, an unexpected gift from a stingy life. So, this isn't an engagement dinner, then," Hanfeng said, feeling that it was his duty to say something to avoid silence among the three of them. He doubted that he would feel any deficiency in his life without a wife. He had said the night before, and his mother had replied that Si Yu was not the kind of a woman who would take much away from him. We don't need any formality among us," Professor Dai said now, and told Si Yu that she should move in at her earliest convenience instead of wasting money on rent. Si Yu looked down the hallway. Knowing that the room, which served as a piano studio for Professor Dai, would be converted into the third bedroom, the piano relocated to the living room. She could see herself standing by the window and listening to Hanfeng and Professor Dai play forehand, and she could see the day when she would replace Professor Dai on the piano bench, her husband patient with her inexperienced fingers. They were half orphans. And beyond that, there was the love for his mother that they could share with no one else. He, as a son who had once left but had now returned, she who had not left and would never leave. They were lonely and sad people, all three of them, and they would not make one another less sad. But they could, with great care, make a world that would accommodate their loneliness. To subscribe to the writer's block and hear more stories, please visit kqed.org/writersblock. The writer's block is produced by KQED.